my argument begins with the uh, idea with the idea that emotions don't emerge spontaneously within us but basically that bodies are taught to feel um, and um, that these bodies are within within the political sphere are placed either into the sphere of civil society or what Partha Chatterjee calls a political society. Um, civil society being the, the bodies that find themselves within civil society are those that embody the uh, ideal citizen subject, right? Uh, these, um, the manners and the, um, and, and, the, and, and the ways of being of these bodies uh, are then marked as, as rational and can, and, and can live within this civil society, whereas the rest, those that fail to embody this uh, ideal uh, citizen subject, um, are cast into political society. Uh, my argument is that what defines Indian civil society, what marks the, Indian, uh, uh, the ideal Indian citizen, um, or, or the, the, the the self of the ideal Indian citizen, stop, let me just uh, pause there. The argument I'm making is that um, Indian, the modernity of Indian civil society is a Brahmanical and Sanskritic modernity. Those bodies that fit the, this, this, uh, this framework are, are held up as the ideal citizens, and those that aren't uh, effectively experience um, their, their experience of citizenship is that um, of of un uh, of untouchables, right? Or of un untouchability. Um, uh, particularly critical to my to my argument are the emotions of shame and humiliation, um, and I, I'll I'll build up on this uh, in a in a while. Um, but I argue that emotion is critical to to my argument. Um, because the body is not just the physical self. If we're thinking in terms of untouchability, uh, we very often think in terms of the body, but the, we shouldn't see restrict the un understanding of the body to just the physical self, but rather we should also include within this body uh, the way in which uh, the body is performed uh, and the kind of emotions uh, that we feel, right? Um, and it is when we expand this idea of the body that we begin to see the, the way in which the Indian state, by privileging Brahmanical ways of being, has instituted new statal forms of untouchability that are suffered by people cast out of civil society. Um, in this whole uh, discussion of emotion, the work of two, sco uh, two scholars, uh, I was particularly taken up by the work of two scholars, that of Veronique Beni and uh, Sabah Mahmood. Um, what Sabah Mahmood does is to shift away from Cartesian understandings of emotion that uh, link emotions to an authentic interior condition. Rather, she turns to an Aristotelian conceptualization of emotions as emerging from the ethical formation of the self. She points out that Aristotle's uh, concept of, uh, conception of the habitus fundamentally co contravenes the popular perception of emotion as arising spontaneously. Emotions, she points out, are the result of, of a physical process of inculcation, which is precisely what the development of habitus is, physical training over a period of time, so that the response is ingrained within the person. She demonstrates this by providing examples of women who wail themselves to inculcate modesty and weep during prayer to imitate the pious behavior of Prophet Muhammad and his companions. Um, what Mahmoud's argument is that because they do this intentionally, uh, because they intentionally mimic these actions, uh, the emotions that they feel or subsequently feel are not necessarily inauthentic, but rather it is only through repeated practice that we begin to feel these, these kinds of emotions. Benny, on the other hand, um, studies um, na daily nationalist rituals in, in schools in Maharashtra. Um, where there is a, a public worship of the nation. And she argues that in enacting these rituals, what they are doing is embodying the nation within them. They feel the nation. Um, and, um, and in various ways, therefore, through their actions, they, um, they, they, they feel what it is to be Indian and, um, 
and, and, and respond in, in particular manners as a result of this daily training that they have. Um, the works of both Beni and Mahmood uh, demonstrate that people are taught to internalize certain values, embody certain dispositions, and these dispositions engender definite emotional responses. In addition to articulating the link between emotions and the self, these arguments also persuade a revisiting of the dominant understanding of the body and the self, in pointing to the way in which bodily dispositions constitute our sentiments, and that bodies are also feeling bodies, it becomes possible to expand the notion of the body to include these dispositions and emotions, and all of these together constitute the self. And such an understanding of physical self, dispositions and emotions are useful when we, when we um, discuss the practice and experience of untouchability that I will discuss in the Goan context. Um, another argument from Mahmoud that, that I, I, I particularly uh, liked was the idea that when these pious Muslim women wail themselves and they pray, um, fear, she says, is the fear of God, is um, an element internal to the very structure of their, of their activity. Um, so taking this formulation, my argument is that if, we, if fear is integral to the structure of the pious act, um, the, uh, I would argue that shame is shame and guilt are integral to citizenship practice, right? Um, now, a lot of uh, um, uh, the, the anthropological study of, of, of and even other uh, discussion of shame and, and, and guilt suggests that uh, shame and guilt are self-evaluative motions. This emerges from precisely from the internalization of a certain value system, right? Um, but one can distinguish these two emotions uh, where shame is when this internal uh, value uh, system uh, holds the entire self responsible, right? Um, let me just move to my short notes. Uh, right, shame is when, when the object of evaluation is also outside oneself um, and guilt is when the, the object of evaluation is the self as well as there is a capacity for this self to have done something differently, right? And I'll, and I'll um, elaborate, I'll, I'll explain this uh, in a while. Um, So my argument is that if there is an ideal citizen subject, um, the way in which we need to embody this ideal citizen subject is um, indicated to us subtly, but also actively through various processes in, in the, and um, uh, Benny's examples of the way we have daily rituals in schools is, is, is perfect. And this is the way in which we are, we are told quite clearly, this is the way the good citizen behaves. Uh, one of the um, examples I, mean, I, 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 I could give is, it's become a ma a, some, something of a common joke, but in schools, in Indian schools, in provincial schools, you have little charts with, uh, with, with, with a sign of, this is what the ideal boy does. He wakes up early, he prays to God, he, um, he respects his elders. Um, so very clearly, these, these, the ways of being are, are indicated to you. And over time, you internalize these, these ideas. And it is when you violate these, these, these notions, then you can either have shame or guilt, depending on where you are uh, implicated in the act. Um, I, I just want to illustrate this whole uh, case of shame and guilt through the example that Benny herself provides of a, uh, of a Dalit uh, man whom she calls Baba. So Baba was born into a Bhangi caste, uh, which is um, a marginalized caste that is, is forced to engage in, um, in, in, in scavenging work. Uh, and she says that this, this gentleman himself re recollected uh, a personal history of having to engage in manual scavenging, which formed part of their obligations to uh, dominant caste groups. Um, in the course of his schooling, he faced the shaming that is associated with the untouchable status of his group. 
Nevertheless, he managed to gain a basic education, finishing his last two years of schooling with English as the medium of instruction. Subsequently, he ensures that in the following two generations, regardless of their gender, uh, his children and grandchildren who demonstrate a certain kind of intellectual capacity are educated in English, while the less academically inclined receive an education in Marathi. As a result of these choices, these um, ch uh, children are, are able to pursue a higher education, secure mid-ranking jobs in company and local administration, um, and as a result of which there is a substantial movement in their uh, class status. Despite the fact, however, that he has managed to, um, that it is through English education that he has uh, moved away from the earlier uh, conditions of, of shaming. Um, Benny reports that over the years, Baba would feel increasingly confident, uh, would, would increasingly confide that he had made a mistake, that he now felt bad because one should definitely learn in one's mother tongue. Right. Um, so the question that Benny poses, how is one to understand this sense of guilt uh, for whom uh, for in, in one for whom English effectively uh, meant an escape from the tyranny and fixity in one's caste location? Um, what Be uh, Benny suggests is that because language in India, as in other places, is constructed as the mother, when we think of uh, when, when we think of language, an entire uh, complex of emotions associated with the mother is drawn in. So as a result, Baba feels guilty of not having paid enough respect to his mother during his lifetime, or rather because, he, uh, because Marathi is construed as a mother and he hasn't given enough attention to Marathi, but in fact given attention to English, he feels that it is, he hasn't given enough value to his mother. Um, so. The language is embodied as the mother, and as a result of, of this, one, one has uh, these emotions of guilt for not having um, paid enough respect to one's mother. So it is with this idea of, of language embodied as a mother uh, that I want to come to uh, the Goan case. Um, in Goa, so as we know, uh, a large part of the south in, of, of, of southern India was divided into uh, administrative regions or states on the basis of language. Um, in Goa, there were a couple of languages that vied for the space of official language, which would define the boundaries uh, and the identity of Goa, one of which was Marathi, and the other was, um, was Konkani. Um, and in the process of their activism, Konkani language activists um, created the uh, created this 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 image of uh, Konkani Mai Mai being the Portuguese and the and also Konkani word for mother, right? Um, and in creating this, they created a, a link, an, an emotive link between the Goan population and um, and the idea of the state that should have Konkani as the uh, as the state language. Um, this figure of the Konkani Mai, or the Konk a mother Konkani, was first articulated in order to rally the mother's sons to her defense when this metaphor was raised to a fever pitch in the course of the agitation to make Konkani the only official language of the territory in the 1980s. Right? Um, once Konkani was fixed as this mother and the mother of Goa, um, the next problem that emerged was the, the question of the script. Um, what happens in, in, with Konkani is because it did not enjoy state patronage for a very long period of time, um, this language which is spoken across the West Coast uh, is written in a variety of scripts. It could be written in the Roman script, it could be written in the Devanagari, and these are the two scripts within, uh, uh, with which uh, Konkani is written in Goa. Then outside of the uh, Goan territory, it can be written in uh, Perso-Arabic by the Muslim Navayats. Uh, it can be written in the Kannada script by both Hindus and Catholics who live in, um, in, in and around Mangalore. And it, or it could be written in Malayalam by um, Hindu speakers, uh, uh, by, by Hindus who speak the language in Kerala. Um, within Goa, because of the, of the, uh, the, the history of Konkani, 
it is the Roman script that had the uh, has a longer tradition. Um, the argument I would make is that Konkani emerges as a language as a result of missionary in intervention. Uh, the missionaries come in, they need to interact with the local population. Um, and it is in this process that they isolate a particular dialect or a group of dialects and forge a new language, which then gets written in the Roman script and is associated with Catholics. And uh, as I will show, a part of the idea of Konkani's untouchability uh, is, is critically linked with its um, identity as a language spoken by Catholics, right? Um, the Nagri script, on the other hand, its history as a, uh, as a script for the Konkani language begins in the late, uh, sorry, in the early, uh, in the late 19th and the early 20th century through the figure of this gentleman called Varde Valaulikar, who was a Bombay-based reformer of the Saraswat caste. The Saraswat caste is a dominant uh, caste within, uh, especially within Goa, right? Um, so what happens in 1987, uh, when Konkani is made the, the, the sole official language of the state, is that rather than recognize both scripts, uh, both the Roman and Nagri, it is only Nagri which is um, identified as the official script of the language. Um, the uh, why why Nagri um, the uh, Rochelle Pinto who has written this fabulous book um, on 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 Goan print politics in the 19th century suggests that this was because um, the legitimacy of linguistic discourses in the subcontinent uh, drew from an association with Sanskrit and any uh, history that suggested otherwise that linked itself up with with the Roman script uh, was seen as a distressing anomaly. Um, I would go on to point out that it is not just th these, these uh, abstract notions of where a language emerges from, but also the lived practices of the language, that it was associated with lower caste Catholics, with Catholics who are seen as untouchable, and lower, especially lower caste Catholics, that we have this kind of a, a discomfort with a Konkani language that is written in the Roman script. And, and performed uh, by Catholics in their uh, linguistic forms. Um, more recently, there have been demands that the Roman script also be recognized as a official script of uh, the Konkani language. And in the course of this, there was what was a, a, a group formed called the Romi Lipi Action Front. Lipi is, um, is the um, vernacular word for script. So, um, the action front for the Roman script. And they um, went into a meeting with this legislator. And uh, in the course of the meeting, one of the, the activists uh, turns to, the, to, to this minister and he says, see, you, you know what? Um, the, the, the Roman script is, uh, sorry. He says that when the Roman script is not recognized, it is akin to one son. This, in this case, it is Nagri, who is allowed to stay in the house while the other son, this is the Roman script, is forced to live outside the house. The house, of course, is the umbrella of the, st of, of, of the state, right? Um, thus violating the equal claims that both sons have on the mother and, of course, to uh, paternal property, right? Um, I, want, I, I, I thought that this, this, this uh, anecdote is particularly useful because, once again, it shows how this language and the, the emotional... Uh, uh, economy of of uh, of motherhood is once again brought into the arena, and how one seeks to make claims for for justice through language language of ideal household relations. So you have the mother, which is Konkani. You have uh, a claim of e of uh, of the equal division of of property, and it the paternal figure or, or the patriarchal figure is now the legislator who is supposed to ensure that justice is done. Um, uh, I just, I, I want to now move more, uh, more, more directly to the examples of shaming and, 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 the, and through which we can see the operation of untouchability by moving on to another anecdote. So sometime in the course of my doctoral fieldwork, 
I went to an event organized uh, by a group called um, Goan Catholics for Devanagari. So while the claim for recognition of the Roman script was made largely by, by uh, non-Brahmin Catholics, uh, and largely person who, who, who could be said to come from, from the Shudra caste, um, there was another group that emerged which was populated entirely by Catholic Brahmins, but Catholic Brahmin priests who were making a claim for, Devnag for, for linking uh, uh, Konkani with Devanagari. So I went to the event that was organized by this group in association with the larger uh, Konkani establishment, the establishment that is supported by the state. So we were having a tea before the event, and this gentleman, um, uh, once again, a Saraswa gentleman, so this is a, a, a Brahmin uh, man, uh, shares with me his delight over the progress Konkani has made in the course of the many years since liberation, which is the um, official term for the integration of Goa into the Indian state. Um, he, said, he spoke to me of the contest that, uh, contest that had been organized to popularize the language, which was so successful, he remarked, that in one case, all the prizes had been taken away by Catholic girls, and yet their accent was so perfect that you would, if you had not known their names, you would never know that they were Catholic. Right, um, so I thought that this uh, this episode demonstrates perfectly the way in which uh, the Catholic body is seen as incapable of ideally speaking Konkani or ideally representing the 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 Konkani person, that is the ideal su uh, citizen citizen subject of the Goan state, and therefore how the Catholic body is marked out for education by members of the Konkani establishment. Um, and once again, these Catholic girls and their, their speaking in a particular accent also brings into sharp focus what I mean by, by, um, by a, a, a larger notion of, of, of the self, which is not just the body, but the various kinds of practices that, uh, that allow us to um, to, to manifest ourselves. So in the case of the Catholic, it's not merely uh, religion, but it is also language, the kind of company that they speak, uh, their accent, um, their lifestyle, and the various dispositions of the Catholic body that is held to be not worthy and fails to meet the standard set for Goan modernity, which has been um, um, which has been established as to be the Saraswat body. So the ideal citizen subject of the of Goa is the uh, the Hindu Brahmin, that is the Saraswat, who speaks a particular form of Konkani called Antruzi, right? Um, these the roots of this aversion to the Catholic body don't stem merely from the 1980s, which is when Nagari Konkani uh, was established as the um, official language of the state but goes even back further to the time of uh, this uh, Saraswat reformer in the late 19th and early 20th century called Vardevalaulikar. So I just want to refer to an extract from the writings of Vardevalaulikar. He says, after taunting Pundalik Bab, the next target of Raghunath Bab's ver verbal cannonade is the illustrious son of Goa, Dr. Zer Jersindakunya of hallowed memory. Raghunath Bab calls him by such expletives as defiled Christian, bigot, and Goanese, and his, that is, Justin the Cunha's excellent essay, The Konkani Language and Literature, is rubbished as a pamphlet, and his, his was an essay which was commissioned by the British government and was acclaimed by scholars. So what's going on over here is that when Varde Valalikar comes onto the stage, um, a lot of the, the Saraswats identified with the Marathi language. And what Varde Valalikar was doing was to make a shift and to suggest to the, uh, the Saraswats that we need to identify with Konkani. This shift was important because in the 1920s, uh, British India is already being carved out by uh, dominant castes along linguistic lines and they're claiming portions of the, of the subcontinent as places where they can dominate. The Saraswats have a long history of not being recognized as Brahmin by Maharashtrian Brahmins. And so um, 
Marathi isn't exactly the best uh, linguistic platform for them to occupy, and hence there is a need to create a homeland, to create a language and a homeland, uh, and in this process also produce for themselves a Brahmanical, uh, a Brahmanical heritage. So if Vardhya Valaulikar <coughs> is promoting Konkani, uh, this gentleman, uh, what's his name, uh, Raghunath Talwadkar, uh, is arguing that we should stick with Marathi, and he is um, referring to a Catholic in these terms as defiled Christian bigot and Goanese, right? Um, when he uses the word defiled, once immediately we get the sense of the Christian being polluted and hence untouchable. Um, this sense, if you speak with most Catholics or most Goans, this, the idea of the Catholic being untouchable is something that would seem bizarre to them, largely because most Catholics tend to have lived at least uh, 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 while the Portuguese were, were around, in a sphere where they were, were, were dominant. However, if one refers to the practices of Hindus or, or Hindu Brahmins of the time, one, take, one can take only the example of um, Damodar Kosambe, who, the famous Indologist, who is recorded as having said that his, was it grandfather or father? Uh, his grandfather was so strict that even though he had Catholic friends, so the Saraswats are an interesting group in that they are Orthodox Hindu, but they also occupied positions of power right from the establishment of the Portuguese state. Um, so they were naturally uh, interacted with Portuguese and and uh, and native Christians, but even after having merely having had a conversation, the grandfather Kosambe's grandfather would come back to the house and take a ritualistic bath. So the idea of Catholics as untouchable and polluted is 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 very much a part of the the Saraswat imagination. Um, so not only does Talwadkar point out to the Catholic being untouchable, but he also uses a particular word called Goanese and he's using it as an insult. Um, this is because around the 1940s. Um, but, but clearly e even earlier, the Hindu elites of Bombay had refashioned the term Goanese to taunt Catholic Goans as half, as half European, half local, and therefore once again polluted because within the caste imagination, to be mixed is to be um, not, quite, uh, not quite kosher. Um, what uh, Valaulikar does in his text is to suggest that um, the Konkani language that Talwarkar was, was dismissing was not the language of the very low classes, that is fisherfolk and farmers, but in fact it was the language of Brahmins and it was through interaction with Brahmins that the Portuguese missionaries had learned the language, right? So even though uh, Konkani may have had a Catholic uh, identity, it was in, in origin a Brahmin language and therefore it is not um, not from the Shudras, Gaudas, Kunbis, and other uh, marginalized castes that Konkani was picked up, right? What is interested, interesting over here is that um, Valaulikar is trying to disassociate Konkani from its context. He's trying to disassociate it from the people who speak it and give to it a, um, a superior origin. Um, So once again, un underlining the fact that Konkani was, was seen as tainted by its Catholic association and a stain that clearly continues to inherit, uh, constituting the continuing agenda of the Konkani language activists to wipe the language clean of this association, right? Um, so I would argue, therefore, that in light of the understanding of the way in which the body and self is constructed, where the body includes not merely the corporeal element but also the dispositions that can constitute it. What becomes apparent is that this disassociation of the performance of the Konkani language by lower caste Catholics, in fact, operates as the practice of untouchability. This untouchability is not merely restricted to the physical body of the Goan Catholic, but rather extends to a disassociation from the larger ethical self of the Goan Catholic. That is to say, a disassociation from their dispositions, their manner of speaking, the writing of the language, and their cultural productions in the language. Therefore, I would argue that untouchability is an integral part of the Konkani language establishment. 
and as a result of the central place that Konkani holds, or rather Nagri Konkani holds, in the definition of Goan civil society, I would argue that untouchability and its concomitant uh, shaming is an integral part of the citizenship experience of being Goan. Um, the way shaming and guilt works, however, as I pointed out, is about having internalized certain frameworks. Um, so it's not enough that you have Brahmins who shame you, Brahmins through occupation of, uh, um, of the, the official uh, imagination uh, shame you, you also need to have internalized this idea. Uh, and the next couple of anecdotes I'll provide um, demonstrate the way in which this idea has been internalized, the idea that um, our Konkani is not as good. So in the course of my research, I spoke with this priest who I will call Father Froilano. So Father Froilano told that whenever he goes to celebrate Mass outside the seminary, he goes a little earlier so that he can speak with the person who's going to do the reading to make sure um, that their uh, Konkani is good and proper, etc. He shared with me another anecdote. So there's clearly a certain kind of agitation that the person doing the reading in church will not use proper Konkani. He then uh, built up on this by giving me another example of how he had a very dear Hindu friend. Um, Father Froilano speaks Konkani, the dear friend speaks Konkani. But Froilano would never speak to this man in Konkani. So at one point of time, this friend is very upset. And he says, but why don't you speak with me in the common tongue that we share? Uh, and then he, uh, Father Froilano shared with this man and, and, and shares with me in, in, through narration. He says that he was embarrassed because our Konkani is not that good. No? Their Konkani is perfect. Their Konkani is pure. right? Um, so once again, we get back to this idea, which is once a, a, a casteist idea of purity and perfection linked with purity, and the language of Catholics is seen as tainted and polluted. Um, and this is not the only incident of silence. Uh, uh, Froilano's silence was in not speaking Konkani. But there was a time when I tried to operate as a... Um, a radio jockey, right? So um, there we were, a whole bunch of us in the All India Radio um, establishment in Panjim. Um, we, we, we were the group that was training to be uh, radio jockeys in English. And there was a gentleman who was speaking with us, uh, a um, employee of the, of the radio, who spoke to us in pure, wonderful uh, f um, uh, uh, Konkani. Um, and the, the audience that composed of all of us, mostly Catholics, was completely silent. Now, I know that I was silent and didn't respond to him. And it was a very awkward silence. I knew that I contributed to the silence because my Konkani is not really all that good. Um, and it's not because it doesn't meet a Brahmanical standard. It's just not that good. Um, so I went and spoke with this, um, with this uh, um, companion who lived in, 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 in a village in Aldana, and I said to her, uh, I said, don't, don't you speak Konkani? And she got really upfront. She says, of course I do, she says. In fact, I do the reading in church and uh, sing in the choir in Con at the Konkani Mass, all of that. And I said, then why didn't you respond to them? Why didn't you respond to this man? And her um, response was, but their Konkani is different now. Uh, which once again I, 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 I would interpret as an example of the discomfort that a lot of, con uh, not a lot, not, not all, but a lot of Catholics have in speaking uh, Konkani with someone who speaks the Anthruzi, that is the, the Saraswat version of the, of the language. Um, what I'm trying to suggest is that shame via the incorporation of moral codes, moral codes that induce the emotion in the individual that fails to live up to these norms is a critical part of citizenship of the citizenship experience. Um, and this sense of shame has been learned by um, a good uh, segment of the Goan, of the Goan Catholic population. Uh, and that the kind of language that they, that they speak is not very good. And this idea is, is communicated in schools primarily. Once again, to go back to that uh, example of Beni uh, that I had offered. For example, at one of these uh, Romi Action Leapy Front uh, meetings, there's this one um, theatrist. Uh, now, uh, um, a theatre is a, 
a, a theatrical form that is produced largely by Goan Catholics in, uh, dia in, uh, in di uh, dialects that are uh, peculiar to the Goan Catholic uh, and uh, are use, uh, use Western forms of drama to, 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 uh, to present the, 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 the idea to the, to the audience. Uh, and, and theater is a hugely popular uh, art form in Goa. It is utilized by politicians when they need to, to make points, uh, when they need to gain, uh, gain, an, uh, gain an audience or uh, win over an electorate. So this uh, theater stands up in the course of a meeting and he says, you know, I, have, I send my child to school, uh, and a, a, a Konkani language school, and when this child comes home, my child turns around to me and says, Mommy, Daddy, your Konkani, your Konkani is wrong, right? So you have, once again now, the household uh, order that is being upset as a result of the intervention, intervention by the state. Um, and once again, a, a, a kind of a shaming where the parent is shamed by the, uh, by the child. We have other examples of uh, parents feeling embarrassed by the grandparents' uh, interaction with the with the child, because you, you have these um, imperfect forms of Konkani that are being uh, ha passed on to the child, right? Um, what I want to use this anecdote of the theatrist as, however, is to is to point out that what this theatrist was doing was making a claim of humiliation. This is really interesting collection of essays. Uh, uh, edited by um, Gopal Guru on humiliation. And in one of these essays, um, I forget his first name, but uh, uh, Palshikar makes the argument that humiliation is not merely an experience, it's a claim. When one stands up and says that one is being humiliated, it is a claim that this kind of shaming uh, can't go on any longer, right? Um, so when this Tyati stands up and makes this claim of being humiliated, uh, makes this claim, I would argue he's making a claim of humiliation, which draws attention to the fact that there is an experience of being shamed. Um, there are other examples of the claim of humiliation. For example, there is a, a, another gentleman who pointed out that he, in, in a public um, uh, debate, he pointed out uh, that uh, you know when we ask, we send our children to Konkani schools because we want to support the language, but um, we are unable to help them with their housework because there's some of the the words are words we just don't understand. Um, and the response by a member of the Konkani establishment was that well because you people come from non-Konkani speaking backgrounds you are unable to help uh, your child. And the response that this gentleman was making to me was was clearly one of anger, uh, and he I think he and he brought out this entire uh, a, a longer history of of saying we consistently have to face this idea of being non-Konkani speaking even though we speak Konkani at home It's just not the right form of Konkani. Um, so once again, this is another claim of humiliation. Uh, another interesting form of humiliation uh, emerged in the course of when. A, a Roman script activist who had gone through the entire process of the university process of learning in Konkani and therefore learning to speak and write in Anthruzi Konkani. So that is um, the language the language form of the Saraswat and to write in, in, uh, in Nagari. So he applies for a position in the university. And uh, he tells me that when he went up for the interview, the, uh, the, the, the panel was headed by someone whom he knew, uh, and he was really pleased by this. I mean, who isn't when one encounters someone who one knows on the panel? Uh, and he thought that should work in his favor. But he says, do you know, Jason, what happened to me? He says, uh, I went there, and um, the head of the panel says, uh, Babu, which is the name we will give this gentleman, Babu, tu amkan kite sang which is to say, Babu, why don't you tell us something, say something to us. Um, and uh, Babu asked me, he says, do you realize what was happening? I was like completely clueless. Uh, he says, what they wanted to do was to figure out if I spoke correctly, right? So the fact that he had passed through a university approved system of, of, of education didn't matter. Um, at the end of the day, he was still suspect because of his Catholic name 
uh, also because of his social location, which also happens to be uh, a Shudra location, right? Um, so once again, Babu was making um, a claim of humiliation um, and also uh, alerting us to the cons consistent experience of, uh, of shaming that goes on. Now, I'm quite conscious that when I argue that the Goan Catholic is in fact, is in fact uh, an, uh, experiences citizenship as an untouchable, one might argue, but aren't you not clubbing all Catholics into one, one uh, monolithic category? What about the existence of caste among Catholics? So this is not my argument. My argument is also, I, um, also conscious of the, um, of the experience of caste among Catholics. Uh, and I would like to use Ambedkar's um, principle of graded inequality to suggest that while you do experience uh, untouchability, the experience of untouchability is experienced more by those who are lower down in the caste hierarchy than by upper caste Catholics. Let's go back, for example, to the uh, case of these priests who created the group uh, go on Catholics for Devanagari. So I was speaking with this one priest who I have named Father Evangelio, largely because his actions go so much against the kind of, uh, of, of gospel values. Um, so um, he suggests, well, we, was, we were speaking to him about Tiat and uh, Rom, uh, Ro, uh, Romi Konkani or Roman script Konkani, and he sneered and he looked at me and he says, they, what culture do they have? Uh, the, they being these Roman script activists, and he was the, he was making a reference to the, his low estimation of their cultural uh, capital, which is Kantara, which is uh, Kantar from the word Kantar, uh, songs which are sung in between uh, scenes in the Tiat, romance, which are uh, novels, the same uh, same term that is used for novels in uh, um, uh, Romance languages, and Tiat, right. Uh, he says, what culture do they have? And um, this was, a, once again, a, a term used by the Konkani establishment. Because uh, whenever these works come up for evaluation in state competitions, they never win prizes because the, the standard response is, because the response is these works have no standard. The standard, of course, being fixed in upper caste forms of, uh, of Konkani, right? Um, what Father, Evange uh, Father Evangelio was actually a mine of uh, upper caste, uh, upper caste Catholic uh, attempt to disassociate oneself with uh, with um, Roman Konkani and move over to an Anthrusi background, um, and the and. W effectively, what he was doing was trying to build bridges with, uh, with the Hindu, with the Hindu Sarasar, with the Hindu Brahmins, by also affirming his own caste background, right, um, and asserting himself as a Catholic Saraswat, and therefore we are brethren one and two, and therefore we should speak the same language. And he was also referring to another idea that the in the eruption of uh, Catholicism into Goa or the territories that became became Goa was an aberration. And were it not for the damn Portuguese, we would all be Hindu and we would be one happy national community. So the, the idea, therefore, Catholicism itself becomes a burden. Um, and the idea is to move back into this national mainstream by speaking um, not a Catholic form, but a Hindu form of the language. Another form of the disassociation happened in the course of the, of the Mando festival. The mando is a, a courtly dance that emerges in Goa in about the 18th century, um, sung to Konkani using uh, violins, sometimes guitars, and a, uh, um, a local uh, percussion instrument called the gumot. Um, the, in the 19, uh, late uh, in the in the 1960s, soon after Goa was integrated into India, the Mando Festival became a way for upper caste uh, activists to create a public Goan culture and secure Goan culture uh, and identity in the face of this the, what was effectively an invasion and what was perceived generally as an, at least by these by these uh, elite as an invasion, um, and so. 
Mando moves from the dance, uh, from the ballrooms of the Goan elite, uh, and becomes is popularized by uh, by this group. So that various other groups also start singing Mando's and joining in the the performances in this competition. At some point, however, they felt that standards were falling, uh, and so they decided that they wanted to they would have a um, what is the um, This one, I've lost my. Uh, uh, they, you have to perform before a selection committee uh, before you went on to the actual competition. Because of this introduction of a, a selection committee, a number of the groups refused to participate. So the selection committee was dropped. Uh, and once the selection committee was dropped, a certain segment of groups now also dropped out of the competition, even though the competition regained its strength. What I'm interested in pointing out is which of who are these groups that have dropped out? At one of these uh, uh, competitions, uh, um, um, a Goan academic who belongs to the upper caste kind of condescendingly pointed out, he said, you know, all these groups, they are not really the groups that used to perform Mando. Um, uh, they, their costumes are not right. Their bodily uh, their dispositions in dancing the, uh, the, the mando is also not right. Um, and so she, she suggested to me that essentially what was going on was that it was a question of caste. Um, and uh, that the groups that had opted out of the uh, competition refused to be on the same platform as these uh, former underlings who were incapable of producing the uh, the dance form effectively. Um, there was this. Uh, this I just want to read out for you a, um, an extract from an article that came in the newspaper because I think it also points out the way in which uh, caste is practiced among uh, among the Goan Catholics and the way in which it links up with uh, Konkani national culture. So. There is this, uh, this, this lady who writes about the mando, and she says, December is the month of weddings. My notice board in the kitchen was pegged with invitations arranged date-wise so as to not miss any. In the first fortnight of December, I had one such wedding. As I was beginning to dine, next to the stage, slowly savoring the food, I heard the DJ announcing that they would now play a mando and re requested all the family members, as well as the bride and groom, to gather at the dance floor. I was quite excited about it because I had a mando written for my wedding and that was the first dance I danced with my husband. It is a very old tradition that has been followed for years in Goa. But to my surprise at this wedding, I had a bunch of people jumping all around, clapping hands to the sound of a kind, kind of Konkani rock song with lyrics of a mando. This is what I call murdering the mando, I told my husband. In my opinion, all weddings don't have to follow such traditions. But if they really want to include this dance, do it the right way. I also wonder how many of the guests really knew what was happening. So there is a sniffing disdain that our, our, our friend is, is displaying for the people who, who, who dance the mando. Um, and I'm basically, what you have going on is, is a demonstration of the way in which Goan civil society hasn't been able to democratize itself and way, the way in which uh, a, a particular kind of form has been democratized in a particular way that everyone now sings and dances uh, uh, the mando, if only for a competition, but it's not done effectively and there are some groups that still uh, refuse to uh, give up control over the dance form. Um, these groups that don't perform the, uh, the, the perform the mando effectively. Other groups would ha which would have been uh, bracketed as Goanese by uh, Raghunath Alwarka, the person, the gentleman I referred to earlier. At around the same time that this word was being produced, the Goanese, the upper class and upper caste Goan Catholics of Bombay took offence to this term and then tried to create a distinction between themselves and the the labouring caste labouring class caste Catholic. Uh, so, Goan was the term that they used for themselves, for the well-born, and the Goanese was for the cooks and the ayahs and persons of, of dubious morality. Um, 
And dubious morality comes in once again because fa- we come back to Father Evangelio, who, in the course of his argument with me, said that if we don't uh, embrace Devanagari, then what we and don't become part of the mainstream, then we will be discarded as mixed breeds, right? Um, and once again, so once again, you have the bi- biological metaphor of caste, which comes in and is clearly uh, part of the anxiety that animates the the. Um, um, the dominant caste Catholic. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, conclude now uh, with the idea that w- what I've tried to do, or maybe let me just read and then maybe I can speak. Um, caste, it becomes obvious, is a central institution through which citizen, the citizenship experience of Goan Catholics is encountered. The hegemony of not only the Saraswat, but other Brahmanized caste groups uh, ensures that caste is a central social institution through which the ideal of the citizen subject is upheld, and that shame is a central part, uh, and, and the shame that is a central part of the caste experience twines with the shame that is a part of the citizenship experience. The claims of humiliation that have been documented here uh, also provide evidence of the manner in which caste and untouchability are experienced by persons who do not fulfill the Sanskritic norms established for the for belonging to the polity. The fact that a Sanskritic model has been accepted as the framework through which the ideal citizen is imagined ensures that untouchability, uh, that the untouchability that is experienced by the Goan Catholics, and especially the laboring uh, caste and class Catholics in Goa, is not a traditional form of untouchability, but rather a state-mandated form of untouchability. Taking these examples from Goa, and the way in which Brahminism structures so much of the norms of civil society in India, we can postulate that untouchability is a feature of the citizenship experience of denizens of um, political society throughout India. And on that point, I'll stop. Thank you. Thank you very much.